The question before us this evening is this. In what does love rejoice? In what does love rejoice? Uh, We all know what it means to rejoice. Just the other day in our house, uh, little Claire, who's about as cute cute as can be right now, came running into the kitchen with her long-lost Hello Kitty water bottle. Uh, that had been lost for literally months. And she was as animated and as, as, as jubilant as we've ever seen her, just jumping up and down, handing the water bottle to Mandy and just having this grin as white as Texas on her face and going crazy um, that she had just found this, this long-lost object. It was the most we'd ever seen her do this before in her life. And um, much of the city in the same way was rejoicing on October 30th, late at night after the Red Sox clinched the World Series. Uh, and that rejoicing was celebrated three days later in a parade in, in homes around New England all that night. There was jumping up and down and high fives and so on and so forth. So the question that we're asking tonight is, <clears throat> what is it that evokes this response in love? If you want to just keep the picture of Claire jumping up and down in your head. What is it that evokes that kind of response in love for love? With what is the person of love grinning, jumping up and down, celebrating and rejoicing? So Paul answers this question in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13. And he says it's with truth that love rejoices. But we live obviously in an age where the concept of truth turns out to be quite contested and controversial. So I think we need to deal with this first to try to understand what this might mean. I might add also that it's obviously always been controversial. Remember back in John chapter 18 at the trial when Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And obviously it goes much further back than that. But if the question of truth has always plagued humanity, um, it particularly does so in our postmodern day and age, in this moment in history. In a culture that's shaped deeply by the nihilism of Nietzsche, we suspect that any claim to truth to having an answer to what actually is and therefore also to what we ought to do, which are two massive questions that every human being has to face in their life. But any claim to truth by any individual or any community is merely a will to power. It's a way of promoting the individual or the community's interests um, over and above those of others around them by promoting this particular view of truth. And of course, those who deconstruct every other view in this way are also subscribing, in one sense, to a view of the world that rests upon some kind of core beliefs. Even the statement that all truth is relative is paradoxically not a relative statement. It's a statement about a kind of absolute truth and a claim that defends one's version of the world who makes that claim. And in many ways, we've come to see that everybody has these sort of basic beliefs from which they have to approach the world. No one is safe from the criticism, not even the critics themselves. So, of course, in the church, in the midst of the confusion in the world about truth, we boldly proclaim the truth, what we call the truth, the person of Jesus, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And we proclaim all that is entailed in that proclamation. This is the way Karl Barth said it, church proclamation is language. And language not of an accidental, arbitrary, chaotic, and incomprehensible kind. But language which comes forward with the claim to be true and to uphold itself as the truth against the lie. The truth of Jesus that we proclaim at Church of the Cross is not just some abstract abstract truth. 
But Jesus himself, the truth, is embedded in a narrative that begins with creation and ends with new creation at the other end, what our great hope is, as we'll get into in the season of Advent in a couple of weeks. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the climactic moment in a story that begins within the beginning and let there be light. And this narrative and its fulfillment in Jesus and its ongoing expansion in the age of the church, which is the age that we're living in, claims to be a true account of the world, of God and of human beings, of each one of us. And this is the truth that we proclaim in the church. Now, let me just say to those of you who might be out there questioning in this way and and say well this is just another move of the will to power in Nietzschean terms that our only answer to that criticism is to come back and say that at the heart of this narrative that we proclaim is the call to love the call to love as we've been studying all fall and that this call to love undermines the will to power as traditionally understood Because in this great narrative from creation to new creation, power is displayed ultimately on the cross of Jesus. The cross is love. And love, because of God's love for us, is fundamentally not centered upon the interests of oneself, but upon the interests of God and of the other. Even our enemy, as we've looked at many times this fall. So because of this, this true story that we tell to the world, that we've inherited, that's faithfully and accurately represented to us in these words of Scripture, this story inherently undermines the will to power by virtue of what's at its center, the cross. This rebuke to all other kinds of power. And this point should at least encourage postmodern skeptics to give it another look before dismissing it just as another power play in a world of competing narratives about what makes sense of what is and what ought to be. So I've taken the time to say this, obviously, because to say that love rejoices with the truth requires, requires that we need to establish what, what do we mean by the truth? This person, this person of Jesus and of the story that he is the climax of. And it's this story faithfully given to us in scripture that gives to us the sense of meaning and of purpose and of direction, and of obligation for our lives. That is, that we understand what human beings are, and what human beings are to do, which is called morality, in light of who God is and his purposes. Purposes for life, and for blessing, for new creation. And and it's precisely this shape of the story, and of the direction for human life, that then informs the rejoicing of love. So, what Paul then says first, is that love won't rejoice at wrongdoing. And when he says that, he means that that love won't rejoice at the presence of anything in the world that runs against the shape and direction of this story that we proclaim as the truth. The word is actually wickedness. Anything that's inconsistent with the direction and the flow of this story of God's redemptive love in the person of Jesus. He's saying love can't rejoice for example, in racism. Love can't rejoice in sexual immorality. Love doesn't rejoice when someone is wronged. Love can't rejoice when the government perverts the ways of justice by catering to big business, etc., etc. Love cannot rejoice at wrongdoing in the world. Well, why not? 
Obviously, wrongdoing diminishes and harms the life of both the one who does the wrongdoing and the one who's on the, uh, the receiving end of the wrongdoing. Wrongdoing diminishes life. Doing wrong leads us when we're the ones who do it to the shadows. Proverbs 28.1 The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Or as we read tonight in John 3, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Wrongdoing takes us to the darkness. It takes us away from God, into the corners, with our faces hidden because of guilt and shame. And love can never rejoice with the diminishment of life. And this, as we've looked at at points this fall, includes even the diminishment of the life of our so-called enemies or rivals. We tend to think their fall is our victory, right? Somebody I'm competing with or I'm angry with actually has something awful happen to them. It tends to be a, a source for me of celebration. I mean, who of us isn't guilty of wishing wrongdoing upon someone that we're in an argument with or unreconciled with? But love doesn't rejoice at the wrongdoing in any case, even if the wrongdoing seems to advance our interests and give us a better position in the world. The one in politics whose opponent is caught cheating, or the rival CEO whose rival company is caught for tax evasion, or the better student who's found out for plagiarizing that increases my standing in the classroom. In each case, our interests seem to be advanced, and we would seem to have reason to rejoice. But love is not self-interested. Agape love is not self-interested. And it laments the diminishment of the life of another in any situation. This love that we've seen that seeks even the good of our enemy, it cannot celebrate or rejoice at the downfall of another, whoever that other might be. Now consider for a moment a more subtle case. We've been hearing a lot recently in the news about the uh, Toronto mayor, Rob Ford. It's been all over the news. His antics and his wickedness, and I say those things uh, pointedly and purposefully, are indeed serious and they're they're offensive. But what's our culture's response been? I mean, obviously it's been all over the place, but one aspect of the response to these stories is that we laugh. The wrongdoing of others just provides material for John Stewart or Stephen Colbert to kind of keep going and so that we can gloat over the missteps of another. It's not that in any way Rob Ford is our enemy. He's not. Nor is it that anyone is particularly rejoicing at the acts of wrongdoing that he's committing in a public office. But many may be smugly rejoicing that they are not such a fool as he is. That in comparison... This puts me in a pretty good light. In some way, this kind of sense of superiority that rejoices at the fall of another informs every act of gossip. Whether that gossip, as in our culture, is proclaimed from the headlines of nearly every magazine that you see at the grocery store, or that gossip is whispered between close friends or spouses in the living room. Underneath that, those words of did you hear that what so-and-so did is some kind of implicit sense that I thank God I'm not like that. And this is a kind of rejoicing at wrongdoing which is not the way of love. Here's what Proverbs 24 says. 
Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. In other words, this proverb is saying, this proverb is saying rejoicing at the wrongdoing of our enemy is a worse evil in God's eyes than what our enemy has done to encounter God's judgment in the first place. And so God will lift the judgment in order to prevent that evil. Because that's the way that God thinks about this when we gloat over the wrongdoing of another. This is not the way of love. Rejoicing at wrongdoing. When the situation is bad, when someone who is made in God's image has been taken down the path of a diminished life, whether it's their fault or another's, into the shadows, love doesn't rejoice. But, Paul says, love does rejoice with the truth. With the truth. It's interesting, that choice of word. We might have said, love rejoices with celebrity. Or with prosperity. Or with human approval. These kinds of things that give us seemingly reason to rejoice. But Paul says, love rejoices with the truth. So I want to offer two ways of understanding this in closing. First, love rejoices with all of those human actions that flow from and conform to the shape of this great narrative, the story of Jesus as king. When Jesus says in John chapter 3, as we read tonight, whoever does what is true, the word truth there has a moral sense to it. And given that truth here in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, is contrasted with wrongdoing or wickedness, it must also have a moral sense as well. So, That is that when human beings live in accordance with the purposes and the ways of God regarding money, regarding sexuality, regarding relationships, love is celebrating. Love is rejoicing. Love is jumping up and down, celebrating these kinds of lifestyles because they lead to life. When the dignity of every human being is upheld, born or unborn, rich or poor, love is celebrating and rejoicing. When the poor are clothed, love rejoices. When spouses forgive one another, love celebrates. When those of us caught in wicked deeds confess them, say that we're sorry, and seek the forgiveness of God and of the one that we have wronged, love throws a party. When the rich, and that includes every one of us sitting here, choose not to hoard but to give generously, love overflows with joy. Each of these actions is like a tributary flowing into the great river and increasing its power. This river of new creation life that God has unleashed in the resurrection of his son Jesus. And we could go on and on and on. So that's one aspect of love rejoicing with the truth. But let me ask this question. What about when the truth hurts? We hear that often, don't we? The truth hurts. Can love rejoice then? What about when I have to admit that I'm an alcoholic or that I'm a workaholic and and that this behavior has been destroying the lives of those that I profess to love? What about when I have to say to my spouse, yes, you're right, I was selfish, I was wrong? How can love rejoice with the truth of these statements? After all, it's these realities about us, each one of us has them, That drive us into the shadows, right? What happened to Adam and Eve after they ate from the tree? 
They didn't say, hey, God, here I am. They hid. It's these parts of us that want us to run, we, we want to run into the dark. None of us wants to confront them. But there's a key in this broader narrative to address this question. Love doesn't simply rejoice with the truth in a moral sense. But it also, and, and this is incredibly critical for us, it also, and I might add primarily, it rejoices in response to the main theme of the story itself. In fact, it's the, this deeper kind of rejoicing of love with truth that enables us to face what we never wanted to face, what we still don't want to face. And so to become free and having done that, then to live out this kind of moral dimension of the truth in the world, in our daily lives. It may be true that, that you're a workaholic and hurting those that you love, but every one of us is broken, every one of us is flawed. Every one of us has the ugly parts, the unpleasant parts about us that we spend a lot of our day and a lot of our life trying to hide and deny and keep away from the light. We don't want others to see them. One of the hard things about marriage is somebody gets so close to you that they can start to see them. We don't want others to see them. We don't want to see them ourselves. And this often then leads us to a kind of self-manipulation, or sorry, self-deception and a manipulation and a conniving, even as Nietzsche would, would be quick to say, in the name of truth. And this then begins to lead us down the path of wickedness, which takes us into the shadows, into diminished life. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that the main current of this story, the central wave chain of this story, the deepest layer of truth that exists in the universe is a God who goes on a great rescue mission. A God who searches those who are hiding in the darkness. A God who comes to them, comes to us, loves us, forgives us, redeems us, and sets us free from the things that cause us to hide. At the center of our narrative is Jesus, crucified and risen, overcoming evil, expressing the unfailing love of God for us and for his world, despite all of the rebellion that exists within our own hearts and within the world that we live in. God loves us and brings us back to life in him. And then he enables us by the power of his Holy Spirit to participate in that same love that heals and renews the world. All our tendencies to run into the shadows are decisively overcome by the love of God at the center of this story. When we know this love, when we've encountered this love, when we've tasted this love, when we've been ravished by this love, when we've been defined by this love, which is at the heart of truth, that is a truth that is much truer than the fact of our selfishness or of our lies, which God already knows about, mind you, and loves you anyway. And sends his son anyway. Then and only then are we set free. Then are we brought into, out of the shadows and into the light of day. And in that light then we are free to rejoice with the truth. Both the truth about morally right actions in the world. But that are consistent with the shape of what God is doing in the world in purposes of life. But also the truth about ourselves. So dignified. And we feel that dignity. We feel that we were made for glory. 
And that's not a problematic feeling and intuition, but also so broken. And we know our brokenness, but so perfectly loved and being restored day by day into the image of God's Son, of perfect and true humanity. In the presence of this love, in in the shining light of this love, then all of our backhanded ways can be put aside. All secrets can be exposed. And while there may not be rejoicing in my admission of a certain kind of problem, sin in my life that's hurting me and others around me, there can at least be a facing of it. Solidly planted on a deeper truth that defines me more fully, more significantly than the truth I'm afraid to confront in my life. And empowered then from that deeper truth to come out of the shadows and into the light. I have to believe that this is a good part at least of what Jesus means when he says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Are you free? Free to rejoice in this deepest element of truth that exists in the universe? This truth of a God who loves you? A truth that's far more true than the truth of your fallenness and brokenness. We can jump up and down like Claire did the other day in our kitchen. Not because we found something that we lost, but because we, the lost, have been found by the love of God.